Welcome to Frontline Defenders Rights on the Line podcast. Rights on the Line presents the voices, perspectives and experiences of human rights defenders at risk and focuses on human rights issues across the globe. I'm your host Aisha Hamdulay and in this episode we explore the theme of digital rights, focusing on social media platforms. We discuss the experiences of human rights defenders in Africa being targeted through online platforms, social media and digital technology. We will chat to Alex Kofidanko from LGBTI Plus Rights Ghana, a LGBTI rights group which uses social media to advance their work and as a result has had their pages shut down. We also chat to Abdi Fatah Ali Hassan, an HRD from the organization Digital Shelter in Somalia about a recently released report on digital security threats in Somalia and Africa. Lastly, we chat to Frontline Defenders Digital Protection Coordinator for the Africa region, Ronald, who will share insights about digital rights in Africa, as well as key tips for human rights defenders on how to protect themselves in the digital space. Welcome, Ronald, and thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a bit more about your role as a digital protection coordinator at Frontline Defenders and tell us exactly what it is that you do? So the digital protection coordinator uh, at Frontline, for my case, I'm the one that covers Sub-Saharan Africa, which is um, East, Central, South, uh, West Africa, uh, basically the French and the English-speaking part of Africa. And what that entails is I give support to human rights defenders and human rights organizations, uh, digital-related defense or protection, um, when they do have incidences, say, on their computers or on their phones or even on online, anything related to digital threats, I come in and I'm I'm able to help them. So the support will vary from from person to person or from organization to organization. For some, it could be one-on-one support. This is pre, uh, pre-COVID. It meant that I would go into the country and I would interact with the activists, the human rights defender or the organization, uh, identify where the threat is that they're, being get, that, they're, that they're facing and then come up with a solution together with them that they would implement. Uh, or even in some cases, I would actually engage before a threat happens when I foresee something like a coming. Mm. Yeah, so that's it. Okay. And in your experiences, um, what have been the most common challenges that human rights defenders face when using social media to spread awareness about their work? A key issue that I, that gets reported to me and that I've had to deal with a number of times are accounts, first of all, being being hacked, being compromised. Their social media accounts being taken over by, by someone else. That's quite very common. Um, something else I've found coming up often is the defenders are suffering or affected by cyberbullying um, due to their comments, more so those that deal with sensitive areas, my minority issues, refugee issues, environmental issues, these tend to get a lot of bullying and a lot of backlash, women, human rights offenders. Um, then I've also found a lot of defamation happening and this comes when it comes to, for instance, women, human rights offenders, there are a lot of defamation campaigns that go on against them. 
a number of them are trolled um, uh, on their social media accounts and this this somehow makes it quite very difficult to, to operate in that area. And then of course there's the issue of the internet blockages and shutdowns that happen in different countries. Even some countries that have gone to lengths of introducing additional taxes on the social media platforms just to, I would say, to reduce on the people who are probably speaking out. Yeah. Mm, and in terms of in terms of censorship of content, you know, and blocking of social media accounts, is this something, you know, which you very commonly deal with in your role? Yes, this content keeps being blocked or suspended. The moment, um, the moment there is fear or there is concern that this particular information is is deemed by by the policies of the social media mm. platform to be uh, to be against their, their their rules then automatically they'll block it it won't necessarily matter um, what the cultural perspective of that mm. is but yeah that's something that happens quite often okay and what is your perspective on um, you know how social media companies discriminate against human rights defenders in terms of their policies and um, you know what content gets censored and how it gets censored how accounts get blocked what are your insights on that so on the aspect of oh, okay discrimination so what 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 I what I the way I like to look at it is uh, social media platforms are business uh, best platforms and they tend to look at who gives them business more than uh, more than the more more than others so human rights defenders are not normally considered as business um, prospects. Well, yeah. primarily they're using it for human rights activities. Hence, any kind of policies that come in there are designed to favor the business environment more than activists. I'll pick an example of um, the uh, when Facebook introduced the policy of the real name, um, the real name, real name system, or real name policy, where it required everyone to use actual names. So you'd find in cases that human rights defenders, some of them require to remain anonymous for their own safety and are able to speak openly. Uh, but then that discrimination comes in that they must use a real name and their real name of course makes them a target for when the authorities who are against what they speak come out. So that, that's, that's really one example that I can quickly look at. And what role do you think that politics and power plays in the censorship of human rights defenders content online i mean not only human rights defenders but you know just generally politics i, I think even plays the biggest role in in when it comes to any form of discrimination any form of censorship or any form of, of, of blocking i would look at it from the point of where the social media companies are best um, and they would subject themselves or submit themselves to the policies in that particular country uh, under which jurisdiction they are and, and put on a blanket cover across that everyone must be able to go by that. So that's already a, a clear abuse of power. Let's take an example of um, when, 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 when should I say, when, when the U.S. policy on a particular matter is this, it won't matter what other what other information is happening, what other policies may be in the countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. It will be simply the social media platforms will enforce that. Um, looking at it from sometimes what are the regulations that a country is putting forward. Let's take an example. Um, in East Africa, there's a country that introduced um, a, a law 
um, on additional taxation, on addition or to social media, um, using social media services. But uh, the social media platforms didn't do anything about it. They simply let that go on well because these countries are their businesses. Uh, similar stories, of course, go across. So politics will definitely determine what happens on, on these platforms. Thank you, Ronald. And, you know, are there any cases of interest that have stood out for you which you've worked on in the last few years which you feel would be useful to share with us? Okay. I can, I can share two cases. One case is um, of a story concerning, so this, was a, this, this is a human rights defender based in, uh, in a West African country, and they are a sexual minority group who had a Twitter account. Um, and in the Twitter account, they were posting, yes, information, which Twitter account ended up being blocked, the Twitter account which was for the movement. Mm -hmm. So they reached out to me and they reached out to a few others and they're trying to figure out, hey, our account has been blocked, but we have no idea why Twitter has blocked our account. Uh, good enough with the digital protection coordinator role, it allows that we have so many networks that are coordinated to being able to communicate with Twitter and finding out what the issue was, only to find that it had been um, a case of of rules uh, being manipulated, or rather the defenders failing to understand what the policy for Twitter was on manipulation and, 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 and spam policy, as, as Twitter would put it. So they ended up being blocked because they had a number of, of accounts uh, and found themselves in violation, but they actually mm -hmm. had no idea that they were in violation of the policy. Mm -hmm. And which is something that is quite interesting that these policies are all out there. Mm -hmm. The fine print is out there, but I would say the fine print of these policies is one of the biggest level of discrimination. Mm -hmm. Not many mm -hmm. activists are able to read them or even know what yeah. is in that policy. <laughs> and yeah. then the finding that they, they end up being, um, uh, their rights end up being violated mm -hmm. and they're told you violated a policy Mm -hmm. uh, but no one from the from the social media company comes out to say this is exactly what you violated. They're mm -hmm. simply emails saying you violated our policies, mm -hmm. and uh, you are off. So then it takes finding an expert like myself to then get down mm -hmm. and have the discussion between the two parties, and 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 find out what exactly did go wrong uh, for this to happen, and how can we make sure it doesn't happen again. Though the unfortunate bit is that not all defenders will automatically yeah. uh, get access to, to people mm -hmm. like me when they need uh, mm -hmm. the help. So, so even when we go back to discrimination, I think part of the discrimination is in the fine print of Definitely. these policies. Uh, even even the lawyers themselves sometimes don't know uh, mm. that this this is a violation, and also in the rate at which the policies are updated, uh, they are updated and person may be thinking a couple of years ago when they last read it, but the accident yeah. was updated a few months yeah. ago. And There's no notification that or anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes, that complicates so much. And uh, so that's one case, but at least we're able to bring, we're able to help this defender come back on board. Uh, and one of the ways in which we had to do it was to find people that could speak out permanently and say, hey, we know this activist, uh, we know the kind of work they do, uh, we know that they are real, uh, they are doing human rights work, bring them on board. And that involved a lot of coordination on my part to, to bring in these different players on there. But I, I guess that's part of, of why, why the DPC role is there. Mm. Um, maybe the second case I can share with you is a case of interest. 
Sure. Uh, so this is a case regarding uh, refugee uh, refugee minorities that are, that are in one of the East African countries. One of them who was protesting the death of another colleague, who is also an activist, was then arrested um, by, by, by the authorities. And the first thing, of course, they took was his phone with the aim of finding out what is in the social media platform. Whom is he talking to along the way? Um, one of the things that we quickly did, and this has come out, of course, years of, of trying to set up what we'd call a trusted partner relationship with social media platforms. So, so for this case, it was Facebook. We're able to reach out to them and have this individual's account suspended before the authorities could get access to it and collect as much information from it to use against this person. So this is one of those other, what I would call a good success story. And in terms of your interactions dealing with social media companies, what is your experience been? Um, is there an openness, you know, to learning and improving on the challenges that human rights defenders face um, with social media platforms? In in the recent in the recent past, um, oh, the the social media platforms have started to show the willingness to have some change happening and I'm, and I'm guessing this is mainly because of the global cry and human rights um, being respected. So that we're beginning to have more discussion with them. They're also beginning to call us more onto the table to have discussion on, on what can they do, what can they improve. And Frontline is one of those organizations that is part of those discussions. We get invited to them and we're part of these different uh, partnership relationships that we are establishing with them. And of course, also, because there is a big team of other human rights uh, digital uh, defenders mm. or digital activists who are working on this, so we have in, we are forming a form of network um, that is then able to lobby these different social media companies to then do something about what is happening. And we are seeing the process is slow, the change is slow, but change is happening. Um, Though, of course, we don't expect it to be perfected in, in, in a short period of time. It's going to take a bit of time. Mm, definitely. Thank you so much, Aisha. Um, my name is Alex Kofidonko. Uh, I'm a Ghanaian and I am currently living in Accra. I identify as a gay man. And I am the founder and currently the director for LGBT Plus Rights Ghana. Um, it is a movement of mostly young, unapologetic, queer Ghanaians and allies championing for the rights and freedom for LGBTQ plus persons here in Ghana. Um, LGBT Plus Rights Ghana started in 2018 initially as a cyber activism blog a platform that uses social media to speak about the issues happening in ghana and then also creating the opportunity for the community to learn from each other and then also get enough information for them to make informed decisions about themselves and so after 2018 uh, we decided that it would be good if the change we are looking for has in place faces that are at the forefront 
pushing for this change to happen and that's how come some colleagues volunteered to want to take up the leadership role and move us beyond just a social media activism blog to a movement of lgbtq persons who have formed this movement in a very formidable way to champion the rights and freedom of lgbtq persons in ghana where the rights of lgbt persons are respected and then also protected and so from 2019 that has been our effort all through to now where we keep pushing for the change that we expect that we would achieve here you know you so you're speaking about um the fact that your organization started basically as a sort of an online platform right and what we want to talk about today is kind of the discrimination that you faced online with social media because of you know the nature of the content of your work mm-hmm. yeah so tell us about the kind of censorship and discrimination that you guys have faced online as a result of um, the work that you've been posting yeah thank you so much Aisha. um so because we started on social media it also means that our visibility on social media is very strong and we haven't even though we have moved beyond just a cyber activism blog to now a movement that is looking at so many areas including um strategic litigation psychosocial counseling community empowerment and all our social media space is still a platform that is very strong that we continuously push for conversations to happen in the country and then also voice out our concerns our our displeasure and our challenges including even the joy that we experience as lgbtq Ghanaians. and in all of this let me quickly mention that when it comes to the mainstream Ghanaian media space the lgbtq community has been silenced silenced in the sense that you do not hear the media speak positively about the community anytime an issue of lgbtq comes out it is always a conversation or a narrative that is coming from homophobes or anti-lgbtq organizations and individuals and politicians and religious and people who are not directly connected or affected with the conversation or the issues that is being talked about and so for a community where we find our voice and are able to control our narrative is mostly through the social media platforms because on this platform at the comfort of our homes with all the securities in place we can still voice out our displeasure and we can still talk about issues that affect us without us necessarily being physically harmed or attacked for the work that we do but in as much as uh, we find space in all of those platforms there is also the high level of homophobia that manifests itself on this platform that are channeled or targeted at us as an lgbtq uh, movement or, or organization on these platforms uh, a lot of times when we share issues um that affect us on this platform you have a lot of homophobes that comes on the platforms and troll us 
right? Who and then they use very demeaning words, right? Like beat them, kill them, stone them. You are not humans. You are demons. You are evil. You have come to corrupt us. You know all those dehumanizing and demeaning words are things that are used on this platform and targeted or directed towards us. A lot of times we do report some of these uh, content to the various social media platform, but unfortunately there are actions that are not taken. We, we report them and then the, the reply we get back sometimes is like they do not see any offense that has been committed by this person. So it's either we block the person or we we ignore the person of some sort like there is always that feedback that is not to curb the situation or or like delete or block this account but rather it is one that says that oh no they don't see any offense in this and so we should rather block these individuals you know and for us we, f we feel like in as much as this is a platform where we have conversation on it should be a safe platform for everyone to voice their grievances and their challenges even though we know that we are in a homophobic country where homophobia dominates the conversation we believe that these platforms are platforms that they say they are unbiased and they are looking at the promotion of equal rights and all so if that is the case then the platform should serve that cause but a lot of times we are overlooked in most of the situations where abuses and violence have been directed towards us to which we've reported but then nothing has been done about it right uh, yeah. okay and you know after receiving these sort of genetic responses from you know whichever social media platform was there ever an attempt um, to investigate or, you know, to take it up further? And if so, what has the response been from, from those social media companies? Honestly, we have, we have, um, t for us, right? We, we do not have enough information about these uh, uh, um, social media uh, uh, organizations right because like in ghana for instance they don't exist it's just currently that we heard that even twitter is uh, planning on uh, creating a, a, an office in ghana right apart from that facebook instagram whatsapp and all the other platforms do not have an office here such so the only means to which we can try to uh, report this incident is the reporting system that they have set in place and like i mentioned this reporting system doesn't necessarily uh, 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 sufficient enough to to deal with the situation you know so in that case the rest is just we just leave it or we just let it go because there is no way we can follow up on it or anything uh recently we heard that Twitter was going to open an office in Ghana, right? 
and even before they came out to say that they are going to open the office in ghana we had used their platform to talk about issues that are affecting us and especially at the beginning of this year where our office space that we created was closed down where the government and the police services and institutions that have been given mandates to protect us were rather antagonizing us and and chasing us in trying to arrest us and then also uh, 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 the case of about uh, 22 people being arrested in the eastern region of ghana and then even recently the 21 persons who were unlawfully arrested by the police in the voter region we continuously use this platform to speak about the issues talk about the issues but then interestingly I mean, we have the conversation, right, but then when it comes to those platform owners, we haven't really had or heard any uh, a response from them to this effect. Uh, and what we heard quite recently was that they were opening an office in Ghana to which we even using the same platform speak about it because they said that Ghana was a, was a beacon of democracy, was a democratic country, and that is why they chose Ghana. And we're telling them that, yes, it is true that Ghana is practicing democracy, but then this democracy that Ghana is practicing, it is a selective democracy where when it comes to the rights of LGBT persons, it is not accorded. We are continuously, on a daily basis, being discriminated against. We are being beaten. We are being killed we are being violated we are being discriminated even on these platforms that is talking about uh it's talking about democracy you know so that is not the case so if indeed this platform is talking about democracy then can we find a more collaborative way of engaging such that these democracy that these platforms are, are are pushing and projecting to the world is one that is inclusive of the lgbtq community such that we are not sidelined or pushed or relegated at the background or erased from the conversation at all and if that's the case then it doesn't necessarily reflect the democracy so we even wrote a letter where we even channeled it to some allies in eu to submit this letter to twitter right we haven't even had uh, uh, we haven't had any response from this platform yet you know so in as much as we we it's a platform that we use and we wish that it would get better when it comes to direct conversation with this platform owners and this platform users it is one that doesn't currently exist for us as a community yeah so i'm hearing that you're saying there's there's this gap and there's this divide between there's kind of like the human element that's missing over there because um you know when you get these genetic responses and when something is clearly um offensive and vile for you know to have this computer genetic response to say this content is not found to be offensive um you know it just shows that that human element is missing there there's Absol absolutely actually not. a person sitting on the other side of of the screen you know yes um and so you know you're saying that you guys have you know you report um hate speech that is um spewed out to you online and stuff like that have you ever 
has your account been blocked or censored as a result of you know other people reporting your account um, because of what they deem to be you know so to say offensive yeah so <laughs> interestingly right in 2019 um, our Instagram account was actually blogged yeah it was no, no sorry not Instagram let me correct it it was a Twitter account that was blogged the Twitter account was blogged and it was blogged without any uh, 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 for notice or any warning about any offense or anything that we have done wrong or anything all we realized was that the it was the next day the next morning my colleague and myself tried to assess the account and then they said the account has been suspended and that uh, uh, it's good to take so it, it, we said the account was suspended actually and so i i asked other colleagues like what does it mean to say that account has been suspended what have we even done right and so they were not really they were like oh one colleague was like this happens sometimes you know yeah one one colleague said that this happens sometimes so let's just give them a week or two they will restore their account so we were like, okay, fine. Let's give it a week or two. So we gave it a week. We gave it a two weeks. And, and they, they, we went through the process in trying to appeal for the account to be stored. So even though we saw it the first day, we appealed. And they were hoping that the account to be restored. It wasn't restored. In, a, a, in the three days or something, we went back again. So we appealed for so many times. And we realized, no, we were not even getting any feedback for our appeal. And it didn't seem to go anywhere uh, with our appeal and everything. So we quickly went back and then restructured and said, listen, guys, if we do not talk about this issue, I don't think we are going to get back our account because it's past two weeks and there is we've made every effort to get back the account. And it doesn't there's nothing showing that Twitter was going to give back our account. So we have a soggy list that uh, we we have access to so the list of uh, LGBTQ allies and uh, organizations and all who are on this platform. So we quickly wrote on the list that our account has been suspended for t by Twitter without notice or without warning or anything, and we don't even really know how to get back that account. And this is an account that we use to call out homophobia and homophobes in Ghana, and we talk about the issues that affect us and for conversations. So if this account is hold. It means that we are being silenced. We are being pushed uh, uh, back on the homophobia that was that is happening in Ghana. And interesting around that time too, there was also anti-LGBT organizations that were uh, 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 spearheading homophobia on a very high level, and there was no way we could voice out our our grievances and our disgust and discontent with what was going on because our account was taken so <coughs> sorry we went back on twitter again on our individual platforms and we began to talk about the issue that twitter has suspended our account so we hope that they can get it back to us we went on the sugi list and then equally uh, uh, put out this sentiment and then we had organization including frontline defenders coming to our aid 
to 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 have conversation with her to get us to understand what was happening you know and we explained to frontline uh, uh, um, defenders and we told them that this we just got up the next one morning and then our twitter account was like suspended with no warnings whatsoever and so we continuously engage with them we continuously push on our various social media platforms individually about the the closure of our account and then while through the engagement we we were able to uh, uh, with the help of frontline activists get back uh, sorry frontline defenders get back our twitter account apart from that in the places like instagram for instance there are times where we've posted a uh, a uh, 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 post on these platforms like issues that are affecting us and then it gets deleted by instagram they are like this 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 uh post is uh goes against their rules and stuff and so they take it down on facebook too if we've, we've had similar experiences right there are times where homophobes will write very demeaning comments and when we reply to this comment interestingly our 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 comment is taken down and then the homophobic comment is left there you know so it's, it's interesting how they censor and take out our conversations or comment or post or our activities and rather leave that of the homophobes and, and, and flying around or hoovering on our faces in on those platforms yeah and do you think that the politics of ghana plays a role in what content is censored on facebook and other social media platforms and what are your insights you know on the role that that politics plays in this yeah <laughs> so i mean recently like nigeria which is like a neighboring country experienced a situation where they banned twitter and i, I think they've still banned twitter from being assessed in nigeria uh, that's not currently the situation in ghana but uh, of course ghana has its own laws but i believe that the Ghanaian laws are equally in line with the international human rights laws you know there are elements of especially unnatural canal knowledge that exist that are used to criminalize or used to club against the lgbtq community but then there are no explicit law that explicitly criminalize lgbtq persons it just criminalized a certain aspect of especially gay men's sexual activities you know so there is no clear laws that says that lgbtq persons cannot advocate or cannot speak about issues that affect them on various social media platforms so if this plat is this platform owners in as much as they want to uh, respect the laws of ghana there is nowhere in the laws of ghana that says that lgbtq persons should be discriminated against and so it will be disingenuous for them to say they uphold on to human rights but then in certain countries they they go with what the 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 country or the homophobia that manifests itself in the country such that they align themselves with that homophobia that will be incredibly double standards in my in my opinion you know and so I do not think that there is any law of that sort unless they want to run 
with homophobes and their homophobia and in that case we will understand because there are a lot of people in ghana including politicians and religious and so many people who are in places of power who do not necessarily understand even the laws or what it means or what things means in the law rather they run with their emotions and their beliefs and their religious ideologies and sentiments and all of that and if in that case they would they will say things that doesn't necessarily reflect the laws but then it is something that ref- that is their personal beliefs but then projects those personal beliefs as though it's a national issues or it's an issues regarding the law no that is not the case and so if they run with that kind of ideology then obviously we will continue to be censored and then these platforms will be contributing factors or they are uh, they will be enabling such uh, uh, actions or to be perpetrated against us as a community thank you thank you so much alex for sharing your thoughts and your experiences and yeah, it was really valuable um, to get insight into how LGBTI rights corner has has dealt with these digital threats. Um, yeah, and as we come to the end of this conversation, um, just asking, you know, is there any advice that you wish to share with other HRDs who may be facing similar experiences, and what would you like to share about what you've learned from that? Um, what I would say is that we should never be bullied into silence. We cannot succumb or give in to bullying and intimidation from leaders in various countries such that they even try to use platform that is open to every other person to voice out their opinion to equally intimidate us into silence we should never be intimidated we should always fight and push back against any form of oppression or any form of actions that derails and undermine human rights and undermine the freedom of speech and expression Uh, thank you very much for inviting me uh, in this podcast. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, my name is Abhita Hassan Ali. I am a human rights defender and blogger. I am based in Somalia. Uh, uh, I work with Digital Shelter. Digital Shelter is a local uh, initiative that promotes uh, digital rights and internet freedom, uh, as well as online civic space uh, in Somalia. Uh, we have a growing digital space uh, within Somalia, and we have large communities who are who are connected to the internet. So we are trying to utilize that uh, space uh, to make sure that we uh, to make sure that journalists, people like journalists, uh, activists, human rights defenders, and even bloggers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, can 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 use it freely, openly, uh, and safely. So. Uh, in a summary, we are a small uh, institution that provide capacity building and also uh, do some advocacy and awareness uh, around the issues of digital rights and, and internet freedom. Okay, that's, that's wonderful and I think really needed in the region. So, 
tell us a little bit more about uh, the most recent report that was released by Digital Shelter that gave some really great insights on you know digital rights and, and how HRDs and journalists are targeted. Um, this report actually was a collaborative report uh, in Digital Shelter and another local uh, uh, research institute. It was sponsored by uh, uh, Digital Defenders Partnership. Uh, and it was mainly focused on fiscal and digital uh, threats faced by three groups that uh, was identified under the, under this report, which are uh, journalists, bloggers, and human rights defenders in Somalia. So it covers across Somalia except the northern part of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, the research was actually primarily focusing uh, five federal states in the country and the capital city. Uh, and uh, uh, it was a work of three months uh, program uh, and uh, it was just concluded uh, on the first quarter of 2021. 20, uh, so yeah, in your report, you know, it says that Somalia has topped the CPJ index for the highest unresolved murders of journalists. So can you tell us a little bit more about the context, you know, in Africa and specifically Somalia in relation to digital rights? I generally, uh, before coming to the digital rights, uh, it's very difficult uh, for journalists in Africa and particularly in Somalia uh, to operate, you know, freely and, and uh, without facing threats. Um, Somalia, as you might know, is a country that is just recovering from uh, civil war. And it has been a very, um, I mean, extremely dangerous place to be a journalist. Uh, and, you know, a uh, number of journalists were killed since uh, uh, civil war has started in the country. Uh, and those murders have never been uh, solved. Uh, no, actually, uh, prosecution in most cases uh, has uh, ever been uh, conducted. And uh, uh, it's it's not an enabling environment for journalists in general um, because of the political and instability and insecurity, and it puts uh, a, a lot of uh, journalists. Actually, I'm just looking at the at the uh, database here. Uh, I think 62 journalists have been killed uh, uh, in Somalia since. Uh, 1991, uh, and none mm -hmm. of the murders have ever been uh, resolved. Mm -hmm. So um, when you when you that's the physical part. Now mm -hmm. with the internet coming, and you know journalists and a lot of people are you know uh, joining the digital space, the risks are also increasing as well. So there is the issue of uh, you know uh, online blackmailing and extortion. This issue of journalists' account being uh, you know, hacked or compromised. There's the issue of, you know, journalists receiving threats uh, through the digital devices, including mobile phones. We have seen actually, and we have worked on cases where journalists have been arbitrarily arrested to their online uh, activities, like posts they, you know, they've posted on Facebook or tweets, uh, who've actually been arrested and persecuted. So the digital risks are actually uh, uh, increasing, and with the same 
physical risks, it's it was related to their work mainly on uh, online space. That links to sort of my next question in terms of you know the report. So there's a section of the report where it says uh, the adoption of technology has expanded the media landscape and civic space with social media platforms and blogs empowering journalists, HRDs and bloggers to comment and report on human rights abuses. However, it's come with its own set of threats and challenges for the same groups, including threats to online freedom of expression. So you've mentioned um, some of these threats being, you know, surveillance and, and, and spreading of misinformation, etc. I'm particularly interested in, you know, the aspect of web censorship and wanting to know how HRDs are censored online. What, what is the government's involvement in that and, and how also do social media companies contribute to that censorship? Okay, so uh, the internet actually has a given huge opportunity uh, Somali journalists, uh, uh, bloggers and human rights uh, defenders, uh, you know, when to uh, fighting for a cause or you know when it comes to activities related on advocacy platform it's very difficult for like for instance in Somalia to organize physical events mm. uh, physical I mean uh, uh, like I mean organized protests in the street it's it's extremely dangerous it's not allowed so the offline civic space is almost closed so the internet has become uh, the best space and the most viable option for organize themselves, uh, you know, uh, to mobilize movements, to uh, uh, carry out a lot of uh, campaigns and activities. Uh, however, uh, the, with the internet, it comes with own risks, you know. Uh, so we, we have seen people who have been facing cyber pain uh, and continuous harassment. We have to see, uh, uh, found out that female uh, journalists, journalists in the online space face uh, online attacks. You know, they are attacked not just because of their profession, but because of their gender status. Uh, we have also seen uh, a few websites who have actually been uh, closed by the government. It's uh, um, uh, due to uh, justification that they are using that the fact that they are spreading false information and uh, uh, we've also seen that a lot of misinformation and disinformation uh, that's being spread on social media uh, is to a kind of counter-narrative against the journalists uh, and other uh, social media influencers who are criticizing the state. So the state have actually put an online uh, army, uh, what we call uh, troll, to counter uh, attack on on the at score on, on what uh, journalists and bloggers are talking uh, about the status quo. So you will find that many uh, uh, human defenders or journalists been censored by the state or have adopted self-censorship fearing for their lives. I know some of colleagues actually very active bloggers and media uh, practitioners who chose uh, to be to remain silenced uh, because of the threats they were facing 
and uh, uh, you know by themselves and by their families uh, and this all, all because of their criticism and because of bringing the truth out there or because because of exposing and some of the actually journalists and bloggers and even social media uh, users who have been actively engaged in in exposing the truth and exposing corruption have actually been silenced and mm. censored by the government. <coughs> some of them, some I know, um, some of them are my colleagues, have actually adopted self-censorship. You know, they were fearing for their lives and and for their families. Uh, so, and unfortunately, these groups actually, that particularly these groups that have been identified in the research actually lacked the skills and the knowledge to, you know, defend themselves from these growing uh, digital attacks. So you spoke earlier about the fact that journalists are sadly very often killed in Somalia. And I'm wondering if there's also a culture of using judicial harassment against HRD journalists as a means of targeting them and as, as a means of silencing them. Um, for example, you know, arbit arbitrary arrests and detention. Yes, yes. So uh, for, for instance, we have a case, like for instance, last year we were working on a case actually of a journalist who was arrested by the police because of a post he uh, made on Facebook uh, about a, an oxygen uh, machine that was taken from one of the public hospitals by the president. Uh, so the machine was taken to the presidential, to the state house for the president actually to use just in case he, uh, uh, you know, uh, infected with mm. the coronavirus. And he posted that on Facebook. He was arrested. He was taken to jail, uh, to court, and was sentenced to six months in jail and a fine of, I am not sure, but it was about uh, more than 1,000 US dollars for spreading false information and, you know, uh, uh, I mean, misleading also, for misleading the public by insulting uh, the president. So mm -hmm. it's, it has happened and we have seen other cases actually who, uh, for example, another journalist was arrested for uh, uh, information he posted on Facebook about the national exam, but he was released later, uh, uh, he was not taken to court. Yeah, so mm -hmm. actually people are being targeted and, and, and jailed and even taken to court for their online activities. Wow. That's really, that's really epic. Your report also mentions that, you know, HRDs will use the block feature as opposed to reporting on social media platforms and, you know, in terms of the, the safety and, and the processes that that is available on social media platforms. So what are your thoughts on the mechanisms available by social media platforms to report bullying um, as well as the methods for, for detecting which content is censored? Yeah, so um, one of the uh, actually findings out of this research when we were conducting uh, was that journalists and human defenders and bloggers prefer the blog options whenever they face online attacks, <coughs> simply because of because it's simple. It doesn't require, you know, it doesn't ask a lot of questions. And, you know, most of the uh, platforms, uh, social media platforms are English language. It's not Somali language, so sometimes people 
it's very difficult for people to understand. With these too many, too many questions that comes after the reporting, uh, you know, uh, clicking the reporting tool. So a lot of the people we interviewed uh, actually opted uh, the blocking option because it's simple and it feels, uh, you know, uh, they feel safe uh, when they block a particular user uh, who is harassing them. Um, there is limited engagement of social media platforms, uh, companies, and uh, and the local Somali journalists. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just uh, slowly starting right now. Uh, there was no briefest engagement at the moment. Uh, briefest engagement, I mean. But uh, right now, um, Facebook and Twitter uh, are actually interested in coming in and addressing this uh, uh, issue. Okay, that's great to because I think there's often a, a divide between social media companies and and you know HRDs and, and content being censored um, in the sense that the, you know those processes don't really address the issue that's at hand and it's often machine learning that is you know blocking content and and censoring content so yeah that, that's good to hear. Um, your report also mentions a lack of sufficient policy available in Somalia for digital rights and cyberbullying. Um, what core aspects would you you know, see a digital rights policy including and, and yeah, what needs to happen to get to that point in Somalia? So, Victor uh, Shelter and many other actually stakeholders are involved in, in uh, mobilization and advocacy uh, programs, uh, uh, you know, uh, an engagement with government institutions in developing effective and progressive digital rights laws and policies in the country. And we are actually in the process of primary Somalia is in the process of developing all these uh, policies you know uh, we are far behind far far actually behind uh, compared to many other uh, countries uh, in the mm -hmm. continent and in the world when it comes to development policies uh, especially uh, policies that are related to digital uh, spaces and tech, and tech you know uh, technology mm -hmm. So, uh, what we are trying right now is to make sure that there's an effective data protection for instance in data privacy uh, policies and mechanisms uh, specifically for uh, media, uh, you know, practitioners and journalists, and bloggers and human rights defenders and people who actually are depending on, on internet, um, you know, uh, have some sort of uh, protection and mechanisms uh, especially when they are dealing with uh, their, their data and information. So, uh, fortunately, uh, the engagement have already started uh, with government institutions. We're working with uh, some of the uh, ministries, uh, actually, uh, who are planning to uh, uh, start developing uh, these national level uh, consultations uh, on having uh, digital rights and uh, policy uh, uh, legislations. And, and, and we want to make sure that everything, uh, all the laws and policies that are being developed are in line with the, with the Somali con uh, constitution, mm. as well as international instruments, uh, especially uh, human rights conventions. Mm. Okay. And that kind of brings me to my last question on, on the report's recommendations. Um, do you want to maybe go into a few of these recommendations and how you see things improving going forward? Yeah, so basically uh, some of the recommendations that uh, was actually highlighted in the report uh, includes 
you know, uh, that stakeholders, all stakeholders actually uh, need to promote free and fair and accurate reporting. Mm. Uh, especially the government needs to ensure relevant laws and policies serve the purpose of encouraging freedom of speech and freedom of expression and opinion. Uh, also, media outlets, owners, especially the, you know, uh, key stakeholders, uh, you know, should be sent sensitized on certain standardized protection mechanisms. There is a lack of capacity uh, for all actually actors that were identified in this uh, research, uh, especially when it comes to both fiscal and digital uh, risks they are facing. So there's a need more, uh, there's a need of more capacity building uh, programs. And uh, we actually realized that these people have not access to any other support groups like for instance you know uh support whether it's family or community there's no support groups for journalists bloggers uh, so there's also uh, the report also recommending an increased awareness on the importance of psychosocial support uh, as well as having support groups for these uh, uh, groups and and also international actors should continue supporting uh, efforts by the government to train police and security personnel as well as court officials on human rights and media freedom you know, so it's very difficult when you have institutions that are oppressing or restricting freedom of media because they, they either don't understand or mm -hmm. they're not committed to respect these, uh, you know, fundamental rights. So uh, uh, it's very important that these groups are also uh, trained. And also uh, having independent monitoring uh, national mechanism uh, that promote transparency and accountability and judicial process. Mm. Uh, especially when it comes to physical and digital attacks against human rights defenders and media workers, it's also uh, very important. So mm. those are some of the uh, recommendations that was highlighted in the report. Okay, that's that's really great. Um, I really enjoyed reading the report. And um, yeah, I mean, if people are interested in accessing this uh, or getting in contact with Digital Shelter, what's, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, actually, we uh, uh, we can be reached at any time through info at digitalshelter.org or through my email or through social media accounts, especially uh, on Twitter. Uh, we are very active and we are, uh, you know, uh, available for any questions and any uh, clarifications. And uh, if a particular organization or institution is requesting the full uh, version of the report, so we will be also uh, sharing with them. We will now hear from Ronald again, who will be sharing some practical tips for human rights defenders on how to protect themselves in digital spaces and utilize social media safely. One, one, one thing I say to activists, and this I say quite often even when I'm engaging with them, is try and read the terms and the conditions that are on any platform that you're using. Even if it may take you months to read them, uh, at least maybe read a page a day or maybe two pages a week because these policies are very long but try and read and know what you're getting yourself into uh, before you before you get yourself into it um, the other advice of course I, I give them is hey do the most basic bits try and protect yourself from the most basic level of, um, if it's your device make sure you have a password on it if it's your account, uh, your social media account, have a password on it or rather a passphrase on it 
that is long enough not to easily be broken but also not related to you that someone can figure it out and try to change it as often as possible and then if you feel that there's something that you don't want to be out there that could be used against you one day or uh, that could bring you into trouble that you're not able to get out of um, use the five minute rule think for about five minutes or give it five minutes before you before you post it mm. uh, otherwise when when it's out there then you can't remove it and mm. then you have to you have to call in people like myself to, to try yes. and help you and, and if you can create a small policy small what would i call a small sing, simple pro security protocol steps of hey i'm going to do this online um am i using a device that's safe am i connected to the to a network that is secure am i writing something that will uh, be accepted uh, by by the mainstream or will not be accepted because then that determines how I, I write it and how on where I write it and with what kind of identity I write it. Mm -hmm. And then overall, be, be willing to ask whenever in doubt, be willing to reach out to, to people like myself and, and so many other digital experts whenever, whenever you can. Okay, and I just wanna, I just wanna um, expand on some things that you mentioned there for people who might not know what it means. What does it mean to have a secure internet connection? So to have a secure internet connection, um, the first and foremost point is to ensure that the network that you're connected to, um, rather, the network you're connected to is not a public or public-free um, network that you're connected to. Trying to make sure that you have at least a virtual private network connected on your device before you connect to any network would be very key. I, I, and when I look at networks, I'm looking at, say, um, airport networks, hotel networks, open um, Wi-Fi. Uh, yeah, wi Before connecting to it, think twice, must I connect to it? Because uh, I could connect to it thinking it is that Wi-Fi, but when it's someone else who has like a set up something for me to connect to. And of course, to have the mindset that the, it's possible for the one who owns the network to know what I'm doing on their network. Mm -hmm. So uh, let me have it on a VPN. Let me ensure that when I'm going to a website, it has the simple SSL, the Secure Socket Layer Certificate incorporated. So for, for, for those that um, are not very familiar, it would mean that if I'm typing in a, a website, I will type in HTTPS, the S always must be there, mm -hmm. and maybe a small padlock. And then not to just keep type, not to just type in my password um, into a site that I don't know. Or if I receive a link in my email and I'm in doubt, let me let me not open that. Uh, yes. Let me ask at least uh, before going forward. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that explanation. And the other thing, what does it also mean to have a safe device? So to have a safe device would one mean that uh, you are the one. You're the only person using the device. Uh, that would be one. That is the most. That is the highest level of safety. Two is ensuring that your device is free of any malware, any malicious software. And one of the best ways of doing that is to ensure that you have um, an anti-malware program running on it. If you're running on Windows, I tend to advise that running on Windows 10 uh, uh, professional has an inbuilt, Microsoft introducing an inbuilt uh, mm -hmm. antivirus system that works well. But you could also accompany that with a, a, a powerful third party um, um, anti-malware program. There are some out there 
which are quite very good and and one of the ones which I, I i sometimes tend to recommend is malware bites which which so far has been quite good mm -hmm. um Cleaning your system, making sure that you run a, a virus scan or a malware scan on your system. Then when going to the browsers, ensuring that you do not open a browser to a link that you are not sure of. Whenever in doubt, do not, do not go there. Don't open it. Mm -hmm. uh, you rather say, hey, I don't trust this. Let me not go there. Mm -hmm. Definitely. All right. And that's really at the most basic level, yes. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, is there anything else you know on this topic that you feel is relevant to share? Yes, maybe what I could add on overall, I would say that social media is one of it's one of the it's one of the most widely used uh, models, should I say, of, of, of dissemination or awareness raising by activists. And given that uh, with the lockdowns that we have had, I think people have also found out that social media has also become part and parcel of, of people reaching out and communicating. So while it has its pros, let's also remember that it also has its, its cons, its negative, and the negative side of it is that this social media can also disconnect us from society. So it's something to think about while using it and, and to think that, hey, I must use it safely, remembering that I'm not the only person using it and the others also that will be benefiting from this. Yeah. Mm. So that's what I can share. All right. Thank you so much, Ronald, for being featured on our podcast. It was great to hear your insights and especially the practical advice that you have given. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rights on the Line. A reminder that our website www.frontlinedefenders.org has a number of resources which may be useful for human rights defenders to use and learn from in terms of their digital rights. It is also where you can access other episodes of the Rights on the Line podcast.